some, some quick advertising. Um, some of the stuff I'll talk about now is in this book, One Generation from Extinction. I, uh, my PhD is in child evangelism, which definitely deserves a woo. <laughs> Just because there's not many of those around. Um, and so my PhD eventually wrote up in this book, One Generation from Extinction. I discovered when I told you this is my PhD in book form, you never ever bought it. Um, so I've changed the marketing slightly, and so this is one generation from the extinction. It contains the principles that will change the world. I've discovered that's a better sales pitch than the other one. Um, however, because you are looking particularly gorgeous today, um, not only can you have one of these for, for free later, and Laura, because he was so good at it, you were, and you were particularly good at the whole prophesying which PowerPoint slide Thank came you. next and pushing the buttons. This is awesome. Laura will choose who gets it. Oh. Oh. Now the reason for that is one person will then love her and everybody else in the room will hate oh. her. <laughs> but that's better than those things happening to me. <laughs> so, because you are looking particularly gorgeous today, this is available on Amazon for £15. Ladies and gentlemen, Five pounds today. Yeah. Available at the back, but Laura's giving up that free version. Uh, and holding a can of Pepsi at the same time. You have so many gifts. <sighs> um, we'll spend a, li a little bit of time, and um, I need to from care for the family. We'll talk a little bit more about this later. We'll spend a little bit of time talking about all those areas that, that Nicola began to allow us to explore this morning uh, about how we communicate faith in the home. Um, these, these are the, the um, interesting statistics. Right now, the present church across the United Kingdom, 6% of them are there because they attended an Alpha course, an Emmaus course, Christianity Explored, or some other form of Christian nurture course. But 56% of the present church are there because they grew up in a home where parents were followers of Jesus. 56% of the present church. We have to give attention to that. The disastrous statistic that runs alongside that is one in every two children who grow up in a Christian home right now walk away from the... Well, let me be clear about this. The research says they walk away from their faith. I don't believe that. But they do walk away from church. They've become disillusioned with church and they've walked away and somehow we have to try and reconnect with them. But they've certainly distanced themselves um, from church. They've moved into the category called the prodigals, and you and I have a responsibility to pray for the return of the prodigals. Important thing we, we have to do. But what we wanted to do in light of all that, um, the first thing we did was we commissioned Riding Lights to run something called Where Adventure Begins. And they're traveling up and down the country, and they're talking about why it's important to communicate faith within the home. We, didn't, we weren't interested in how at that point, we were interested in why. Um, and so they've been traveling through the country, 65 venues over the last two and a half months, um, communicating this, this whole idea. Alongside that, we put together this book called Home Time. Home Time is not the writings of one person. It is a collation of a question we ask to a whole pile of people, whether it be children's pastors, youth workers, parents, church leaders, we asked them this question, what worked? What worked? In the communication of faith to your children, what worked? And we captured those ideas and we put them down in this book called Home Time. And then we used a follow-up question which was harder. And we asked the question, what didn't work? Where did it go wrong? And we captured some of those ideas and placed them in Home Time as well. Because sometimes we learn more from each other's mistakes than we do from our blessings. That's okay. I'd much rather learn from somebody else's mistakes than make those mistakes myself. Um, so it's always useful. Um, and that's, that's home time. Uh, available today at the back price, £10. And changing lives, Nick just did the advert for. Um, <laughs> I'm going to enjoy this one. This is available, ladies and gentlemen, on Amazon, priced £14.99. Because you are super gorgeous today, at the back it's available for £15. <laughs> I can't be bothered with the whole penny thing. Um, so these are available at the back for, for 15 pounds and uh, that's there as well. Out of my new role, um, we've just developed with Cardiff University a Master of Theology in Children, Young People and Families. This is going to be amazing. I managed to persuade uh, Bill Wilson who runs that tiny little church um, in New York City with his 25,000 boys and girls attending every week. 
He's going to come and talk for us on our master's course on contemporary models of mission. That's going to be really exciting. Lucy Moore, who, who uh, set up the whole messy church thing, is going to come and talk to us on that, uh, on that contemporary models of mission thing. Rachel Turner, who's running Heritage for Faith, is going to come and uh, lecture on that area of nurture within the home. Uh, so it's a really rather exciting uh, course run with Cardiff University. Um, and <laughs> fortunately today, I brought the right leaflets which are available in the back. Um, I say that because um, when I did a, a recent one in London, I brought all the leaflets that were in Welsh. <laughs> Apparently not a lot of Londoners speak in Welsh. Um, so that wasn't a lot of use. Fortunately, somebody had a photocopy and managed to, to save me with my one single copy of that whole thing. So that's my advertising done. I want to talk a little bit about this. I'm going to reinforce what Nicola has said to you. I'm going to present the same medicine, but it's going to come in a slightly different bottle. Will that be okay? Yes. yes. Turn to the person next to you and say, that sounds like a great idea. That's Thank you. Philip Cliff, when he finished his research into the Sunday School movement, concluded with this. Sunday School teachers cannot do for parents what they must do for themselves. The classroom is no substitute for the family. And we heard it and we say amen to that. And we, we saw how many counters that the family have to play with. But what it does is it suffers from an inaccurate understanding of the Hebrew language in terms of this word, family. If we were to dive into the Old Testament and understand this word family, we'd recognize that we translated family, but it comes from two different Hebrew words. Put the Hebrew words behind us. Um, now, this, this computer obviously doesn't have a Hebrew font, so it made it look a little bit like space language. Yeah. <laughs> But, it, but it, it reads that way, that's the word mishpakor, and that's the word bahith. Now, I always thought it was bahith. A Hebrew scholar recently said it's pronounced bait, but I think that's silly, so we're going to keep calling it bahith. <laughs> <laughs> so that reads, and this is mishpakor down there. And I, I want to give you a little understanding of those two words, so we can begin to hang a couple of things together. Um, that first word, bahith, is the word we encounter in the Passover account. And we know what, what takes place where we teach children, so therefore we're the people who always win the Bible quizzes because you learn more when you teach. You get that, right? Yeah. So we know about the Passover account. Uh, God has said to his people, Israel, the angel of the Lord is going to come on a specific night, and every house that doesn't have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the angel of the Lord is going to take the firstborn of that household. Now, it is a lovely story, by the way, but please don't fly past that too quickly. Please, I want you to know that that is incredibly problematic to the 21st century mind. The fact that God would behave in that way is incredibly problematic. And part of what we have to do is just be open and honest with that fact. I don't know why he did this, and I don't like it, but he did. So the blood of the lamb on the doorposts on these particular houses... That means that the angel of the Lord is going to pass over that particular home. The lamb that has been used to prepare that sacrifice, the place on the doorpost, is going to be prepared in a specific way for a feast inside the house. Very soon, that particular meal that's taking place at that point, very soon God is going to say, I want you to continue to repeat this feast as a lasting ordinance for generations to come. And the Passover meal is born. And the instructions are very clear. Now from that point forward, they're going to celebrate this meal. It becomes a liturgical feast because at a set point in the meal, the youngest child in the household has to stand and ask a very important question. They have to stand and ask, what makes this night special? It's as simple as that. And so the child stands and says, what makes this night special? Mum or dad will then begin to explain, we were slaves in a land that was not our own. And God brought us into a land of freedom, of liberty. And he did it by parting the Red Sea and doing miracles. So why is this particular feast built in, in this particular way? And why does it have to be repeated every year? Jewish households will repeat that festival again 
this year they'll just keep repeating it why is it so important why is because it communicates the God who does stuff this is a God who turns up and does stuff they were slaves in a land that was not their own and God made a miracle happen so that they could walk through into the promised land the God who does stuff and it's the communication of the God who did something, therefore God is able to do something, therefore this is the God who is endowed with potentiality and can do something. Now I know we all believe this, we certainly believe it in our theology, we often don't outwork it in our practice. Now we don't believe that God created the universe and allows the whole thing to run down as the forces of entropy take their course. We don't believe that in our theology sometimes in our day-to-day -day living we act as if he created and walked away we need to allow God to step into creation and do miracles he wants to all the time miracles happen all the time all the time the God who does stuff and he steps in and he wants to do stuff and so God institutes this Passover meal which allows us to communicate the God who does stuff. I haven't got you there yet, okay? We'll do it this way. Um, the most useless category of leader in any children's ministry in any part of the world is called 13-year-old boy. Most useless category of leader. Now, I'll prove that to you because 13-year-old boys can't speak anymore. They can grunt a lot. They can't walk anymore. They can stumble from one place to the next. And every summer for our summer conference, we, we have 12,000 uh, boys and girls who, who are going to come. Therefore, we need an awful lot of leaders to lead those groups. Therefore, into some of those groups, we need the most useless category of leader. We need 13-year-old boys. On one particular day, I'm working at, at a venue, or just popped into the venue, that runs for three and four-year-olds. It's the venue called Pebbles. And I walk into Pebbles, and the arrangement is, because they're still up front and they're still small group stuff, into the small group, um, an adult leader has got a 13-year-old assistant helper. <laughs> I walk into the room, he comes stumbling towards me and says to me the words, I need to get Zoe's mum. I, I don't know why always mum. What's wrong with that? And I need to get Zoe's mum. Zoe is poorly. Right. Okay. What, what do you mean by this? Bad stomach. Need to get her mum. It's because I'm Welsh. The English boys feel as if they need to talk slowly. <laughs> And so I say to him, listen, do we or do we not believe in the God who does stuff? He kind of looks sheepish, he looks at his feet, and he says the words, well, you do. <laughs> no, 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 no. You do as well, because I've read the reference your pastor gave you to come here. Unless you tell me your pastor tells lies, well, he's really looking at his feet. There's a fair chance the pastor doesn't know who he is, but it seems like a pretty good way of getting him out of the way for the summer. We'll fill in the reference. And so he, he looks out and I said, no, 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 the, your reference says you do as well, and if your pastor didn't lie, you, right? And he's no good. So right. So if we believe in the gods, the, the, the God who does stuff, you need to wander back across the room, and you need to pray for Zoe. And he begins to stumble back across the room. He gets halfway, stops, then he's straight back and he says, What do I say? I say to him, It's really complicated. You might have to write this down. Ready? God make Zoe better. Amen. Okay. And as he walks back across the room, I can see him mouthing the words so he doesn't Oh, bless him. Oh, you're so pastoral. <laughs> and he wanders back across the room and he, and he 
comes down and, and he, he doesn't doesn't know any of the rules, doesn't know that he should say it. So is it okay if I place my hand in his shoulder? He's grand sir. <laughs> God may tell you better. Amen. And he's up and he's back across and he says, I did it, I did it, I did it. Can I get Zoe's mum now? <laughs> he said, shall, shall we wander across and, and have a little chat with Zoe? Okay, but we need to get her mum. So we walk back across and we're, we're kneeling on the side and I, I say to her, so who are you? And she says, I'm Zoe. And I say, are you okay? And she says, I, I am. I said, so what, what was wrong? She said, I pulled it on me. I thought, what happened? And then she looks up at him. And let me introduce you to one of the mysteries of the universe which I just do not understand. <laughs> For me, most useless category of leader. For her, the look is love, adoration, and almost worship. <laughs> what is it with you, Zoe? You can't even walk straight. <laughs> Her eyes are wide, and she looks up at him, and a big smiley face, and she says, He prayed for me, and now I am better. <laughs> and she, she looks back down, and I look up at him, and a 13-year-old boy's eyes suddenly go wide because the God he'd heard about and, and had been told about for all those years, he suddenly experienced and recognized and came face to face with the God who does stuff, right? Now, I need you to know something with all honesty. If we serve a God who doesn't do stuff, I'm out. I'm gonna do something else. <coughs> now you're worried. <laughs> but the reality is you can't be worried because we do, right? I, I'm, I'm communicating much better than they're responding, Nick. I am. Did you give them decaffeinated coffee? It was pop, it was the popping candy. You're all distracted. You dare not open your mouth to say amen in case someone shoots out. Right? Fair enough. This is your fault. Sabotage the crowd. The God who does stuff. And so we became, he came face to face with the God who does stuff. A child like that is not leaving the church. This is why involvement of teenagers in our ministry is so fundamentally important because they get for themselves to minister. Therefore, they become channels of the God who does stuff. Yeah. That's so exciting. Don't let your young people be consumers. That's just not allowed. When Nicholas said earlier that, that young people come back and help, I said to Laura, it should be a law. If you, if you get to 13, you don't get to disappear. You automatically have to come back and minister. It should be a law. You won't let me pass that law, right? No. But they have to be involved and they have to recognize the God who does stuff. But the amazing thing is, Bahith, uh, that word, which it looks like the homes that you and I live in, Maybe some kids, mum and dad, sat around the table together. But he, the, the family that I described earlier, is the word least commonly translated family in the Old Testament. The word most commonly translated family is that other word, mishpakor. And mishpakor means the bond of kinship which unites people together in a common belief system. The bond of kinship which unites people together in a common belief system. Mishpakor. Now we translate it family because we, we don't have any other words for that. Let me explain what that looks like. So you, you have a household, Jewish household, Hebrew household. They, they've had some sons. The sons are soon to get married. They go off and they propose to their wife-to-be. And as they propose to their wife-to-be, Esther is okay. I will not draw attention to the fact that you're I will not. I'll keep moving and you can just get away with it without being embarrassed and go bright red on the front row. Soon. Isn't that lucky you got away with it? No, it's not. It's not. It's still ringing. Should we have a conversation or we, we're good? Sorry. No. Not with you, I was going to have a conversation with them. Was it somebody important? 12 o'clock alarm. It's fine. Is it 12 o'clock alarm? What time do you normally get up? Oh, <laughs> wild at Aberdeen, aren't they? I mean, never would have thought it visited. But 
He's proposed to his. He's proposed to his. You want me to keep going or start to give up? Alright, He goes up. I'm gonna ring my phone. So he goes up. He goes up and he proposes to his wife to be, and she says yes. It's all arranged. Um, and then he goes back and does something interesting. He goes back and next door to the family home, he begins to construct another home. And when that home is complete, when everything is in place, he then is going to go back and he's going to take his wife. Now, she's had a lamp lit and in that window the whole time. When he comes back and he collects her and, and he takes his bride and there's a week of celebration in the community and after the week of celebration in the community, they move into their new home together. Um, and it's... It's, well, you understand what's going on here. You understand what's going on here because somebody taught you this story on the side of their seat. This, this is John 14. I worked. In my father's house are, are many rooms. I'm going there now to prepare a place for you. When I prepare a place for you, I'll come and I'll take you so that you can be there with me also. And all those listening to Jesus would understand that he's outlining for them a Jewish wedding. They'd all recognize that. And so he's gone off and he's, he's built that home. There would be many sons in that house and they've gone off and they've built homes of their own. They in turn will have sons who will do exactly the same. And what starts off as a central dwelling soon becomes other dwellings around it. Some becomes greater dwellings around it. And it grows and it grows and it grows. It starts off as an immediate family of a heath. Then it becomes an extended family, a greater extended family, and then eventually over that whole thing as it extends out, it becomes a tribe. And over that tribe is the word mishpakor, a bond of kinship which unites people together in a common belief system. And whereas the context for Bahith is Exodus and Passover, the context for mishpakor are all those lovely verses in Deuteronomy. Talk about these things to your children when you come in, when you go out, when you sit down. It's not written in the context of a Bahith. It's written in the context of a Mishpakor. And so everybody who's part of Mishpakor recognizes that they have a responsibility to communicate faith to the next generation. Oh, but it's a little bit more subtle than that. Um, it's not a case of everybody ha has a responsibility to. It's a case of everybody does. You see, Mishpakor is not natural, it's supernatural. So if you're part of Mishpakor in a particular place, you will communicate to that next generation. You'll either communicate the God who does stuff, or you'll communicate dry, redundant, barren, hopeless, useless, dead faith. But you will communicate something, because everybody does. And whereas Bahith looks like the homes that you and I live in, and the main fundamental truth for that is communicate the God who does stuff, Mishpakor looks like, or should look like, our churches. <coughs> that community which gathers together. And we'll build a community, Jesus said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And every member of that community has a responsibility to communicate faith to the next generation. Oh, no, Mark, you're mistaken. It's for the people who sign up and are part of children's water. No way. That's not the deal. Everyone who's part of this thing has a responsibility to communicate faith. But listen, church is not natural. It's supernatural. So everybody who's part of it will communicate. It's not an optional extra. It's not something I'll choose to do or not to do. Everybody does. So that old chap who stands in the front row and he wants to know why you keep singing those jolly newfangled songs where you repeat the same chorus over and over again and then you repeat the last line twice and then stop. And he wants to know what was wrong with the hymns of Charles Wesley. They were good enough for the Apostle Paul after all. They ought to be good enough for us now. Listen, he communicates that frustration into the boys and girls of that mishpukul. He communicates that. That person, he wants to know why the pastor has to preach for more than six and a half minutes every week. <laughs> communicates her frustration into the lives of the boys and girls of mishpukul. 
and it flips the other way. Those people who just joined the, the worship group, and they're up there, and they've just got married, and, and they, they know that they should have other work overtime, get more money, just got married, all the pressures, but they're not going to do that. They're going to sacrifice extra income because they want to be part of that worship team. They want to stand at the front and worship Jesus. Listen, when they stand there every Sunday, they communicate their sacrifice and their love of Jesus to the boys and girls of that mishpachor. All three categories are saying we don't do children's ministry. We don't do youth ministry. We don't have anything to do with them. I say completely irrelevant. If you're part of this community, you will communicate your faith to the generations who are coming up in this community. It is not an optional extra. So what we have to communicate, and communicate it loudly and passionately, is if you want to belong to this church, in this place, it is absolutely a privilege. And it's a privilege which comes with responsibility. You are responsible before God for what you communicate to that next generation. See, freedom in Christ, liberty in Christ means we can say what we want. That doesn't mean we should say what we want. We're responsible for our attitudes, our words, our conduct in front of that rising generation. They have to, they have to see you. You have to be a good example. Sticky Faith concluded that there is no silver bullet in terms of bringing one generation through and then sticking with it. But if there was a silver bullet, they said the closest thing we've got is children seeing adults worship. So they have to see it. They have to have opportunity to see adults worshiping. They have to have opportunity to see how you carry yourselves. And whether it's in the context of Mishpachor or in the context of Bahith, we have this fundamental problem because Western mind, this is how we're programmed. We protect our children. Well, that's a good thing, right? We've all, we've all attended the 47th safeguarding class. We've all, we've all done that. Uh, so we've all been at that point. We get the protection part, but what happens is we overprotect, and therefore we never allow our children to become strong. So if we if we are struggling financially, but we say we'll never tell our children about this, and then God does the miracle because listen, God always does the miracle. But the second law of the universe is quite simply this: He never does it early. This is the God of the eleventh hour, and I'm going to have words with him about that. <laughs> Because I don't know why he has to play that particular game. What's wrong with two o'clock? <laughs> That's why you've got your alarm set for twelve. <laughs> well, out of time, God. We didn't do eleven o'clock. We're out of time. Um, I, I, <laughs> Sorry, I, I promise not to mention that again in the next two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and towards the end, if things are on a lull, I would <laughs> But God does. God always does it. And my, my favourite message to, to, to preach, and I didn't get a preacher because I'm doing Bible teaching. Like you um, my favourite message to preach is, is we usually give up just before the miracle happens. And so God does 11th hour, but we quit by 10 o'clock. And so we kind of have to stick in there and allow God to do it. So, so in the context of the home, and we, we say, well, there's not enough money. We'll never make it through the end of the week. The, the numbers just don't add up. God, you just need to help us. Because we want to protect our children from that, we never tell them about that. And therefore, they never get to see the miracle. So they never get an experience of the God who does stuff, a God who steps in and does amazing things. So we just kind of need to involve them in that part of the process as well. And there is such a thing as overprotection. And, and we just need to, when we break, they kind of need to see, how, how do we deal with broken? Yeah, yeah. Did, you, did you get bitter? Did you get resentful? Did you start writing nasty letters? <laughs> or did you allow the God who binds up the broken hearted to step in and do something? And, and if we did that, and your children get to see that, or you've prepared them well for life. Because it is disappointing sometimes. There's no way around it. 
But if we prepare them that way, we allow them to see that God who always comes through, that God who always does miracles, who steps into time and space and does incredible things, we just need to let them see that. But we need to let them see that in Bahith, and we let, need to let them see that in Mishpakor. And I think it's an incredibly powerful pattern. And it absolutely is God's A plan. So this is, this is how God wants to do it. The communication of faith through the home and through the community. And when we move into the, the New Testament, let's see if I can keep on. Oh, tuck it off without getting too oh, messy. Um, when we move into the New Testament, we're not going to reinvent the pattern. We've got something that works. So those early followers of Jesus are going to go with what works. But except the stories now change. So we're going to sit around the table together and we're going to talk about the God who does stuff. But now the stories have changed from the Passover account to this is the God who breaks into time and space for us. This is the God who lives a sinless life. This is a God who goes out of his way to find the lost, the forsaken, the lonely, the hurting. This is what he's like. This is the God who always will leave the 99 to go and find the one. That's what he's like. But all that stuff falls through, by the way. So, so that, that gorgeous account of, of, of Peter at the gate beautiful. And there's that, that, that crippled person who's been crippled from birth, the Bible says. And everybody else walks past. But this is a disciple who's been trained by the Jesus who will leave the 99 for the one every time. This is the Peter who is the pinup boy. He's led 5,000 people to Jesus one day, 3,000 people to Jesus the next day. I would be asking for a rise at that point, by the way. So he's got 8,000 people. He's the superstar who can't help but turning and connecting with the one. Because that's how he's trained. That's what his Jesus is like. And so they're now talking about the Jesus who, who will leave the 99 to find the one. He will talk to the Samaritan lady at the well. He will talk to Zacchaeus who's climbed up a tree to observe what's going on despite being the tax collector and nobody like and all the rest of that. And then he dies a painful, horrific, forsaken death. And then he conquers even death itself. And he sits at the right hand of the Father and the seed of us. So the stories change. And we need to communicate the story of Jesus. The amazing things that he says. So the stories change, but they hang on to it. And then when they gather at Solomon's colonnade in, in the early chapter of Acts, now we do the Bible a disservice by again imposing our Western minds on it. If we think for a second that only the big people gathered at Solomon's Colonnade. This is not how they did it. The community gathered at Solomon's Colonnade. This is a brand new Jesus Mishpachor. And every single member of this brand new Jesus Mishpachor recognizes that they have a responsibility to communicate faith to the next generation. How cool is that? And it works so, so well. This is God's apron. This is how God wants to do it. And it moves into church history. And they're communicating around the home. And they're talking about the God who does stuff. And they're gathering as communities with everyone responsible for. Because I don't think it's possible outside of community. We, we need to link ourselves to communities where we can say, I don't know how to do this. How does this work? When my daughter was born, um, I came to Christ aged 15. Um, uh, in a Pentecostal church in Maestale, a little Welsh Valley. And I, I promise you, if they owned chandeliers, they would have been swinging from them. <laughs> it was this glorious place. Every single person owned a tambourine. <laughs> Every single tambourine had a collection of coloured ribbons. And they could shake those tambourines in coordination throughout the whole church. It was in unity, in terms of tambourine playing at least. <laughs> And I, I came to faith in that environment in 15 simply because the very spiritual reason that the girls were attractive. <laughs> I wandered in because the girls were attractive. But, but no Christian background. I, I, I don't have any of that. I, this, that's just not me. So I just wandered into that. So when, when my daughter is born, when Mia is born, 
to do. Because I've had no pattern that tells me how to do it. But when I took a survey on my, um, my uh, field, uh, actually wine, and, and I, I asked them to talk to me about their background, 70% of the people on the field, 24,000 people over two weeks, 70% of first generation followers of Jesus. And what does that mean? That means, well done church, you're doing evangelism. You're, you're getting it. The kingdom of God is increasing. Where to go? What it also means is that there's no understanding of how they parent. They've never seen a pattern or a model of that. They didn't grow up in that Christian <laughs> home, so they don't know how to do it. I made some, some fundamental mistakes <coughs> early on with Nia. The first one was letting Laura babysit. <laughs> that wasn't a mistake. That was, it was good. It was, a, it was good. Second. Yes. You did. You played computer games with my daughter aged 18 months. <laughs> I was learning. Uh, by that point, I'd been a tourist pastor for a little bit, so I had some clues. Um, I, I knew that the reading of Leviticus at bedtime was the stuff of nightmare. <laughs> so I, I knew Bob Hartman's Storyteller Bible was probably going to work a little bit better. But it's new. I, I didn't know you did that at bedtime. I, I didn't know you said prayers before you, you ate together. I didn't know you ate together. It's all, all, all brand new learning for me. When she's poorly, what do I do? Phone the doctor, because that's what my mum did. No, I, I'm a follower of Jesus now. I say prayers first. Oh, okay. See, it's brand new, isn't it? And so you need to recognize that you're surrounded by people who are probably a lot of first-generation followers of Jesus, and nobody's told them how to do it. And worse than that, some of them came to faith in their 20s or their 30s, and therefore they don't see the importance of communicating faith to their children because they trickled in when they were adults, so surely their children will too. And, and so we, we need to work with that. We need to, to recognize that's happening. We need to train those people within our churches to be able to do it. So you need community. You have to have community. I need an environment where I can say, help. This is all too much. I need that. I think it's really hard outside of the context of community. Do you agree? Yes. 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 Okay, thank you. <laughs> Got that. Okay. Forced agreement. So, so belief, mystical, powerful system, effective system, fragile system. It only takes one generation to not do this. Or worse still, one generation to pass on dead, redundant faith, and you've lost one generation. Well, not strictly true. We kind of cheated in, in this country. Uh, we cheated because um, of using something called the grandparent factor. And that meant that if parents didn't bring their children to church, grandparents would bring their, their grandchildren to church. So it, it got us around the thing for a, for a short period of time. And that's still to be encouraged. We actually need to directly tell grandparents, hey, bring, bring your grandchildren. It's a, it's a great idea. But we need to recognize that we've moved beyond that point in history now where children don't know, where parents don't know, where grandparents don't know. They have no connection with the Jesus story. And I think it's one of the most exciting times to live in. And yet, you show me all those figures about declining attendance. and uh, It's one of the most exciting times to live in. It's how you see your world. The story is told of, of the man who was sent to a faraway continent to sell shoes. When he arrived on the continent, he looked around and came straight back. And he said, it's impossible, they don't wear shoes. One of his colleagues heard those words and got onto the ship straight away because here was a whole continent of people who didn't have shoes. Just how you see it. It's wide open. Right now it's wide open. So the thing, the thing broke for us. Grandparents don't know. Parents don't know. Children don't know. So we need something else to, to, to sneak in at this point. I wonder, I wonder if this will, this will work. This will work. Oh yeah. Okay. Ooh, fancy. Fancy. <laughs> Oh, some people are so easily pleased. Because <laughs> you're from Aberdeen. <laughs> this is called electricity. Since <laughs> <laughs> oh, lost the audience and they love you, and that was, that's good. it's worked out really well for you. But 
Fahid, we now understand. Mishpakol, we now understand. But what do we do when it's broken? And we need to introduce this thing at that point called child evangelism. And child evangelism is the bringing of the Jesus story to boys and girls who wouldn't hear that story in any other way. And so what you have to do is introduce a third dimension to your ministry. And if you're the lead children's pastor in your church, you must have an understanding of all three areas. If you work in the children's ministry in your church, it is possible for you just to specialize in one of the three. But if you're the top, then you need to understand all of them because all of them need to be functioning together for us to be an effective voice into our world right now. And so what I want you to see is, is child evangelism introduced. And it is exciting. So, so if this was 50 years ago and I wanted to immunize Jude against smallpox, I'm not going to inject you. <laughs> if I wanted to immunize Jude against smallpox, then what I would do is I would inject her or expose her to cowpox. And she'd get cowpox, and, and I, I used to say, and you would perspire mildly for a night. And, and I, I preached this message uh, in New Zealand where everybody is a cattle farmer. Who knew it? <laughs> and so they're queuing up at the end to tell me that you wouldn't even perspire mildly for the night. You wouldn't even know it was in your system because they don't know about cowpox, apparently. Um, but what would happen is, I've given you something like it, but what it does is it builds up the natural immunities against smallpox. Listen, what we did for most of the 20th century in this country is we gave people something like the Jesus story, which was a, a Jesus story devoid of power. We communicated the God who doesn't do stuff. We communicated an impotent God, a hopeless God, a useless God. And we communicated that to generation after generation after generation. We gave them something like the Jesus story, but wasn't the Jesus story. And the end result was we immunized entire generations against the Jesus story. So they're not connected anymore. And so 20, 25 years ago, if you said to somebody, would you like to send your kids to our kids club? They would say, is that like Sunday school? You'd say yes. And they'd say, I wouldn't inflict that on my worst enemy, let alone my child. <laughs> Why? Because we did it badly for a while. This was, this was a gospel without power. And so we've recaptured that. We've reintroduced that. We've, we've, we've brought it back to the church. We just need to begin to communicate that. So what happens now, having immunized all those generations, what happens when you're one, two, three generations removed from the Jesus story in most homes? I'll tell you what's happened. The immunization effect has worn off. So what it means is you and I get to communicate on a blank canvas. How cool is that? So we get to, to present Jesus. Or, and, and so they, they come to me and say, oh, we went to this school and we asked them what Easter was. And they said, chicks and, and uh, springtime and, and uh, chocolate. And, and they go, it's terrible. The world is terrible. No, that's what happens when the immunization effect has worn off. They don't have some vague idea about an unknown alien god. So it's a brand new blank sheet of paper that you and I get to paint on. How cool is that? So we live at that point in history. Now the warning is this. You paint on it in primary colors. You tell Jesus' story. You don't get to use that blank canvas for your denominational affiliation or your pet doctrine. Nobody cares. And denominations never did us any good. And your pet doctrine probably did us no good either. We want to communicate Jesus. So all those things that I talked to you about earlier, that Jesus who breaks into time and space, lives a sinner life, finds the lost, dies a, a hurting forsaken. We communicate that because there are boys and girls who want to know that God loved them so much he broke into time and space for them. There, there are boys and girls who need to know that this is a God who will go out of his way to find the, the lost and the hurting because they're lost and they're hurting. And this is the Jesus who dies a painful, horrific, forsaken death. God, why have you forsaken me? Because we have an entire generation that feels forsaken. And they need to hear that this is a Jesus who understands where they're coming from, who recognizes what they're about. And this is a Jesus who overcome even death itself. So everything is possible. But listen, if resurrection is possible, everything is possible. It really is true. And so we have that blank sheet of paper that we can, 
we can begin to present onto in primary colors because the immunization effect has worn off. Let, let me explain it this way then. Um, John lives down the street. He comes to your kids' club. And he's seven. He kind of wanders in every Wednesday night. He sits. He likes it. He enjoys it. Um, down the street is Susie. She's seven. She doesn't like your kids' club. But mum says she's going. <laughs> so every Wednesday night, Susie comes as well. She just lives with just mum. Mum needs the extra time to sort the house out and all the rest of it. So Susie, you're going. John lives with, with mum and dad. He kind of likes it. Now, we've tried to, to connect with John's mum and dad. We've tried to be incredibly creative. And we've run our barbecues and all the rest of it. But they're not coming. Um, they, they've wandered in. They, they come for Christmas. Therefore, they think they're regular. They come every Christmas. <laughs> and that's it. That's all we're getting from them. Um, Susie's mum says, it's not for me. Susie's that, and she never tries. She never connects. She never comes to your after course. And they grew up in this thing. And they're in the youth ministry and they're having a good time and they're helping out with your kids' ministry now. And now they're young adults and they're part of the worship team. And when they're 25 years of age, John and Susie decide they like each other so much, they start holding hands. <laughs> My daughter is now 21. I wanted to know the appropriate age for holding hands. <laughs> Her last birthday, I sent her a lovely card saying, only four years to go, darling. <laughs> so they're 25, they start holding hands. A little bit after that, they, they get married. They have children of their own. And watch this. How did we reach John and Susie? We reached John and Susie by using child evangelism. Child evangelism is in dotted lines because it is a repair strategy. It's trying to fix something that's broken. We reach John and Susie's, uh, John and Susie with child evangelism. What do we need for John and Susie's children? John and Susie will need to sit around the table with their children and need to talk about the God who does stuff. They'll need to talk about when they were young people and they trusted Jesus for the money for a mission trip and he came through. They need to talk about the God who does stuff. And they're every once, twice, three times a week, they'll go to their local Jesus Mishpachot. And every member of that community will recognize their responsibility for communicating Jesus to the rising generation in that mishpachor. John and Susie's children will get at least those five relationships which they need to point them in the right direction. They'll get to see adults all around them worshiping Jesus. And so it begins to work for them. And I want you to see this because this is so important. It takes one, two, three generations to break. Three generations to break and we can fix it in one. Mm -hmm. We just need to reach enough John and Susie's. Yeah. That's how simple the whole jolly thing is. If we can just reach enough John and Susie's. And church, one final thing. I'll, I'll just leave all that floating in your head. The, the, that stuff is, is in the books at the back and you've got all the rest of that. But I want to leave you with one more thing. What we need to do, um, great title for a conference. We need to stop chasing after the spectacular and instead understand what's significant. And so huge numbers is, well, let, let me explain it this way. We're in the, the 19th century. Um, and there's a meeting in a small Scottish fishing village. And the subject's not, not your fishing village. <laughs> Nowhere near you. Completely opposite end of the country. And they're having their meeting together. And their discussion is, what are they going to do with their minister? Because he's truly useless. And one of those people defending him said, he's not useless, he's just really old, he's been really faithful, he's been here for a long time, and he leads the Sunday school as well. And they say, hey, listen, we're not keeping a minister just because he runs the Sunday school. And the arguments continue back and forth. And somebody eventually says, well, how good is this Sunday school? And somebody laughs and says, only one boy comes. This defender says, but one boy became a Christian this year. Then they say, are we really going to keep a minister on the basis of, of one little boy who came to Jesus this year? Are we really going to do that? They put it to a vote, and it was almost unanimous that they were getting rid of their minister, they needed a new one. And the years went by, and that little boy grew up. 
His name is Robert Moffat. He's known to us as the father of modern missions. He stands in a university in the south of England and he says, I've been to Africa and I've seen the smoke from a thousand villages who've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ who will go. And a young man in the university stands up, his name is David Livingstone, and he's set off there and then for Africa. And today in Africa there are bishops planting, not churches, they're planting <coughs> dioceses. They're sitting round tables together and saying, this geographical area needs Jesus. I want to see 500 churches planted in that area over the next 12 months. That's the sort of thing. There are congregations right now in Africa which are numbering four or five million. Africa owes a huge debt to a minister in a Scottish fishing village who didn't do anything of any significance that year except lead one little boy to Jesus. Come on. It's about the one. So you and I say serve a saviour who will leave 99 in the pursuit of one. And you've got chasing after the one every time. Because embedded in the one is the nation. You need to think through. Not, not the spectacular people. We're chasing after that which is significant. And so hopefully, the Heath Mishpachor, child evangelism, gives you an idea how those three dimensions will work together. And there is an exercise if you want to take it into lunch. And the exercise is this. What would you score your church out of 10 in each of those three areas? In terms of Bahith, well, actually, that's about teaching parents how to parent. That's about running those sorts of courses as well. How, how well would you score your church out of 10? Mishpakot, how great is your kids' ministry? How great is your teaching to the adult congregation that to be here is a privilege which comes with responsibility. Ultimately, how good is your child evangelism? How good are we connecting to those boys and girls who will never hear the gospel message preached in any other way other than you being it? So that's how good is your school stuff? How good is your outreach stuff? I love that area. Love that area. So how good are you in each of those? And having done that exercise, and you've got a, a set of three marks on the side, I want you to do the follow-up exercise, which is this. What will it take to make your church 10 out of 10 in every area? What do you need to do that's extra? What do you need to do? And therein lies your strategy for the next five years. <laughs> All written out nicely in front of you. The miracle. Say a prayer. Yeah. Well, we thank you for this time together. We just pray that these would not just be words. If this is just cognitive, it's been a bit useless. But Father, let it be by your Holy Spirit, ministry to our hearts, which is transformational. So come and speak, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And thank you.